Chapter Thirty One of East Lynne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. East Lynne by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Thirty One. Mr. Dill in an embroidered shirt front. It was a lovely morning in June, and all West Lynne was astir. West Lynne generally was astir in the morning, but not in the bustling manner that might be observed now. People were abroad in numbers, passing down to St. Jude's Church, for it was the day of Mr. Carlyle's marriage to Barbara Hare. Miss Carlyle made herself into a sort of martyr, she would not go near it. Fine weddings in fine churches did not suit her, she proclaimed. They could tie themselves up together fast enough without her presence. She had invited the little Carlyles and their governess and Joyce to spend the day with her, and she persisted in regarding the children as martyrs too in being obliged to submit to the advent of a second mother. She was back in her old house again, next door to the office, settled there for life now with her servants. Peter had mortally offended her in electing to remain at East Lynne. Mr. Dill committed himself terribly on the wedding morning. About ten o'clock he made his appearance at Miss Carlyle's. He was a man of the old stage, possessing old-fashioned notions, and he had deemed that to step in to congratulate her on the auspicious day would be only good manners. Miss Carlyle was seated in her dining-room, her hands folded before her. It was rare indeed that she was caught doing nothing. She turned her eyes on Mr. Dill as he entered. "'Why, what on earth has taken you?' began she, before he could speak. "'You are decked out like a young duck.' "'I am going to the wedding, Miss Cornelia. Did you know it? Mrs. Hare was so kind as to invite me to the breakfast, and Mr. Archibald insists upon my going to church. I am not too fine, am I?' Poor old Dill's finery consisted of a white waistcoat, with gold buttons and an embroidered shirt-front. Miss Corney was pleased to regard it with sarcastic wrath. Fine, echoed she. I don't know what you call it. I would not make myself such a spectacle for untold gold. You'll have all the ragamuffins in the street forming a tale after you, thinking you are the bridegroom. A man of your years to deck yourself out in a worked shirt. I would have had some rosettes on my coat-tails while I was about it. My coat's quite plain, Miss Cornelia, he meekly remonstrated. Plain? What would you have it? snapped Miss Cornelia. Perhaps you covered a wreath of embroidery round it, gold leaves and scarlet flowers, with a swan's-down collar. It would only be in keeping with that shirt and waistcoat. I might as well have gone and ordered a white tarleton dress, looped up with peas, and streamed through the town in that guise. It would be just as consistent. People like to dress a little out of common at a wedding, 
Miss Cornelia. It's only respectful when they are invited guests. I don't say people should go to a wedding in a hopsack, but there's a medium. Pray, do you know your age? I am turned sixty, Miss Corney. You just are. And do you consider it decent for an old man, going on for seventy, to be decorated off as you are now? I don't, and so I tell you my mind. Why, you'll be the laughing stock of the parish. Take care the boys don't tie a tin kettle to you. Mr. Dill thought he would leave the subject. His own impression was that he was not too fine, and that the parish would not regard him as being so. Still, he had a great reverence for Miss Corney's judgment, and was not altogether easy. He had his white gloves in his hand when he entered, but he surreptitiously smuggled them into his pocket, lest they might offend. He passed to the subject which had brought him thither. What I came in for was to offer you my congratulations on this auspicious day, Miss Cornelia. I hope Mr. Archibald and his wife, and you, ma'am, there, you need not trouble yourself to go on, interrupted Miss Corney, hotly arresting him. We want condolence here today, rather than the other thing. I'm sure I'd nearly as soon see Archibald go to his hanging. Oh, Miss Corney! I would, and you need not stare at me as if you were throttled. What business has he to go and fetter himself with a wife again? One would have thought he had had enough with the other. It is, I have always said, there's a soft place in Archibald's brain. Old Dill knew there was no soft place in the brain of Mr. Carlyle, but he deemed it might be as well not to say so in Miss Corney's present humour. Marriage is a happy state, as I have heard, ma'am, and honourable, and I am sure Mr. Archibald, very happy, very honourable, fiercely cried Miss Carlyle, sarcasm in her tone. His last marriage brought him all that, did it not? That's past and done with, Miss Corney, and none of us need recall it. I hope he will find in his present wife a recompense for what's gone. He could not have chosen a prettier or nicer young lady than Miss Barbara, and I am glad to my very heart that he has got her. Couldn't he? jerked Miss Carlyle. No, ma'am, he could not. Were I young and wanted a wife, there's no one in all West Lynn I would so look out for as Miss Barbara. Not that she'd have me, and I was not speaking in that sense, Miss Corney. It's to be hoped that you were not, retorted Miss Corney. She is an idle, insolent, vain, faggot, caring for nothing but her own doll's face and for Archibald. Ah, well, ma'am, never mind that. Pretty young girls know that they are pretty, and you can't take their vanity from them. She'll be a good and loving wife to him. I know she will. It is in her nature. She won't serve him as, as that other poor unfortunate did. If I feared she was one to bring shame to him as the other did, I'd go into the church this hour and forbid the marriage, and if that I didn't do, I'd smother her, shrieked Miss Carlyle. Look!
look at that piece of impudence that last sentence was uttered in an indifferent tone and concerned somebody in the street miss carlyle hopped off her chair and strode to the window mr dill's eyes turned in the like direction in a gay and summer's dress fine and sparkling with a coquettish little bonnet trimmed with pink shaded by one of those nondescript articles at present called veils which article was made of white spotted net with a pink ruche round it sailed affy hallijon conceited and foolish and good-looking as ever catching sight of mr dill she made him a flourishing and gracious bow the courteous old gentleman returned it and was pounced upon by miss corney's tongue for his pains whatever possessed you to do that well miss corney she spoke to me you saw her i saw her yes i did the brazen bellwether and she saw me and spoke to you in her insolence and you must answer her in spite of my presence instead of shaking your fist and giving her a reproving frown you want a little sharp talking to yourself but miss corney it's always best to let bygones be bygones he pleaded she was flighty and foolish and all that was affy but now that it's proved she did not go with richard hare as was suspected and is at present living creditably why should she not be noticed if the very deuce himself stood there with his horns and tail you would find excuses to make for him fired miss corney you are as bad as archibald notice affy hallijon when she dresses and flirts and minces as you saw her but now what creditable servant would flaunt abroad in such a dress and bonnet as that with that flimsy gauze thing over her face it's as disreputable as your shirt-front mr dill coughed humbly not wishing to renew the point of the shirt-front she is not exactly a servant miss corney she's a lady's maid and ladies maids do dress outrageously fine i had great respect for her father ma'am never a better clerk came into our office perhaps you'll tell me you have a great respect for her the world's being turned upside down i think formerly mistresses kept their servants to work now it seems they keep them for play she's going to st jude's you may be sure of it to stare at this fine wedding instead of being at home in a cotton gown and a white apron making beds mrs latimer must be a droll mistress to give her liberty in this way what's that fly for sharply added miss corney as one drew up to the office door fly said mr dill stretching forward his bald head it must be the one i ordered then i'll wish you good day miss corney fly for you cried miss corney have you got the gout that you could not walk to st jude's on foot i am not going to the church yet i am going to the grove miss corney i thought it would look more proper to have a fly ma'am more respectful not a doubt but you need it in that trim retorted she why didn't you put on pumps and silk stockings with pink clocks he was glad to bow himself out she kept on so but he thought he would do it with a pleasant remark to show her he bore no ill-will 
just look at the crowds pouring down miss corney the church will be as full as it can cram i dare say it will retorted she one fool makes many i fear miss cornelia does not like this marriage any more than she did the last quoth mr dill to himself as he stepped into his fly such a sensible woman as she is in other things to be so bitter against mr archibald because he marries it's not like her i wonder he added his thoughts changing whether i do look foolish in this shirt i'm sure i never thought of decking myself out to appear young as miss corney said i only wished to testify respect to mr archibald and miss barbara nothing else would have made me give five-and-twenty shillings for it perhaps it's not etiquette or whatever they call it to wear them in the morning miss corney ought to know and there certainly must be something wrong about it by the way it put her up well it can't be helped now it must go there's no time to return home now to change it st jude's church was all in a cram all the world and his wife had flocked into it those who could not get in took up their station in the churchyard and in the road well it was a goodly show ladies and gentlemen as smart as fine feathers could make them mr carlyle was one of the first to enter the church self-possessed and calm the very sense of a gentleman oh but he was noble to look upon though when was he otherwise mr and mrs clithero were there anne hare that was a surprise for some of the gazers who had not known they were expected at the wedding gentle delicate mrs hare walked up the church leaning on the arm of sir john dobede a paler shade than usual on her sweet sad face she's thinking of her wretched ill-doing son quoth the gossips one to another but who comes in now with an air as if the whole church belonged to him an imposing pompous man stern and grim in a new flaxen wig and a white rose in his buttonhole it is mr justice hare and he leads in one whom folks jump upon seats to get a look at very lovely was barbara in her soft white silk robes and her floating veil her cheeks now blushing rosy red now pale as the veil that shaded them betrayed how intense was her emotion the bridesmaids came after her with jaunty steps vain in their important office louisa d'urbade augusta and kate herbert and mary pinner mr carlyle was already in his place at the altar and as barbara neared him he advanced took her hand and placed her on his left i don't think that it was quite usual but he had been married before and ought to know the clerk directed the rest where to stand and after some little delay the service proceeded in spite of her emotion and that it was great scarcely to be suppressed none could doubt barbara made the responses bravely be you very sure that a woman who loves him she is being united to must experience this emotion 
wilt thou have this man to be thy wedded husband to live together after god's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony spoke the rev mr little wilt thou obey him and serve him love honour and keep him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others keep thee only unto him so long as ye both shall live i will clearly firmly impressively was the answer given it was as if barbara had in her thoughts one who had not kept holy unto him and would proclaim her own resolution never so to betray him god helping her the ceremony was very soon over and barbara the magic ring upon her finger and her arm within mr carlyle's was led out to his chariot now hers had he not just endowed her with his worldly goods the crowd shouted and hurrahed as they caught sight of her blushing face but the carriage was soon clear of the crowd who concentrated their curiosity upon the other carriages that were to follow it the company were speeding back to the grove to breakfast mr carlyle breaking the silence suddenly turned to his bride and spoke his tone impassioned almost unto pain barbara you will keep your vows to me she raised her shy blue eyes so full of love to his earnest feeling had brought the tears to them always in the spirit and in the letter until death shall claim me so help me heaven the german watering-places were crowded that early autumn they generally are crowded at that season now that the english flock abroad in shoals like the swallows quitting our cold country to return again some time france has been pretty well used up so now we fall upon germany stalkenberg was that year particularly full for its size you might have put it in a nutshell and it derived its importance name and most else belonging to it from its lord of the soil the baron von stalkenberg a stalwart old man was the baron with grisly hair a grizzled beard and manners as loutish as those of the boars he hunted he had four sons as stalwart as himself and who promised to be in time as grizzled they were all styled the counts von stalkenberg being distinguished by their christian names all save the eldest son and he was generally called the young baron two of them were away soldiers and two the eldest and youngest lived with their father in the tumble-down castle of stalkenberg situated about a mile from the village to which it gave its name the young baron von stalkenberg was at liberty to marry the three counts von stalkenberg were not unless they could pick up a wife with enough money to keep herself and her husband in this creed they had been brought up it was a perfectly understood creed and not rebelled against the young baron von stalkenberg who was only styled young in contradistinction to his father being in his forty-first year was famous for a handsome person 
and for his passionate love of the chase. Of wild boars and wolves he was the deadly enemy. The Count Otto von Stalkenberg, eleven years his brother's junior, was famous for nothing but his fiercely ringed moustache, a habit of eating and an undue addiction to draughts of Marco Brunnen. Somewhat meagre fare, so report ran, was the fashion in the castle of Stalkenberg. Neither the old baron nor his heir cared for luxury. Therefore Count von Otto was sure to be seen at the table d'hote as often as anybody would invite him, and that was nearly every day, for the Count von Stalkenberg was a high-sounding title, and his baronial father, proprietor of all Stalkenberg, lorded it in the baronial castle close by, all of which appeared very grand and great, and that the English bowed down to with an idol's worship. Stopping at the Ludwig Bad, the chief hotel in the place, was a family of the name of Crosby. It consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Crosby, an only daughter, her governess, and two or three servants. What Mr. Crosby had done to England, or England to him, I can't say, but he never went near his native country. For years and years he had lived abroad, not in any settled place of residence. They would travel about and remain a year or two in one place, a year or two in another, as the whim suited them. A respectable, portly man of quiet and gentlemanly manners, looking as little like one who need be afraid of the laws of his own land as could be. Neither is it said or insinuated that he was afraid of them. A gentleman who knew him had told many years before, in answer to a doubt, that Crosby was as free to go home and establish himself in a mansion in Piccadilly as the best of them. But he had lost fearfully by some roguish scheme, like the South Sea bubble, and could not live in the style he once had done, therefore preferred remaining abroad. Mrs. Crosby was a pleasant, chatty woman, given to take as much gaiety as she could get, and Helena Crosby was a remarkably fine-grown girl of seventeen. You might have given her some years on it had you been guessing her age, for she was no child, either in appearance or manners, and never had been. She was an heiress, too. An uncle had left her twenty thousand pounds, and at her mother's death she would have ten thousand more. The Count Otto von Stalkenberg heard of the thirty thousand pounds, and turned his fierce moustache and his eyes on Miss Helena. Thirty thousand pounds and von handsome girls, cogitated he, for he prided himself upon his English. It is just what I have been seeking after. He found the rumour touching her fortune to be correct, and from that time was seldom apart from the Crosbys. They were as pleased to have his society as he was to be in theirs, for was not he the Count von Stalkenberg? and all the other visitors at Stalkenberg looking on with envy would have given their ears to be honoured with a like intimacy. 
One day there thundered down in a vehicle the old Baron von Stolkenberg. The old chief had come to pay a visit of ceremony to the Crosbys, and the host of Ludwig Bad, as he had appeared himself to marshal this chieftain to their saloon, bowed his body low with every step. Room there, room there, for the mighty Baron von Stolkenberg. The mighty Baron had come to invite them to a feast at his castle, where no feast had ever been made so grand before as this would be, and Otto had carte blanche to engage other distinguished sojourners at Stolkenberg, English, French, and natives who had been civil to him. Mrs. Crosby's head was turned. And now, I ask you, knowing as you do our national notions, was it not enough to turn it? You will not then be surprised to hear that when some days subsequent to the feast the Count Otto von Stolkenberg laid his proposals at Helena's feet, they were not rejected. Helena Crosby rushed into her governess's room. Madam, madam, only think, I am going to be married. Madam lifted her pale, sad face. A very sad and pale face was hers. Indeed, she gently muttered, and my studies are to be over from today, Mamma says so. You are over young to marry, Helena. Now don't you bring that up, madam. It is just what papa is harping upon, returned Miss Helena. Is it to Count Otto? And may it be remarked that the governess's English was perfect, although the young lady addressed her as madame? Count Otto, of course, as if I would marry anybody else. Look at the governess, reader and see whether you know her. You will say no, but you do, for it is Lady Isabel Vane. But how strangely she is altered. Yes, the railway accident did that for her, and what the accident left undone, grief and remorse accomplished. She limps as she walks, and slightly stoops, taken from her former height, a scar extends from her chin above her mouth, completely changing the character of the lower part of her face. Some of her teeth are missing, so that she speaks with a lisp, and the sober bands of her grey hair, it is nearly silver, are confined under a large and close cap. She herself tries to make the change greater, so that all chance of being recognized may be at an end, and for that reason she wears disfiguring spectacles, and a broad band of grey velvet coming down low upon her forehead. Her dress, too, is equally disfiguring. Never is she seen in one that fits her person, but in those frightful loose jackets, which must surely have been invented by someone envious of a pretty shape. As to her bonnet, it would put to shame those masquerade things tilted on to the back of the head, for it actually shaded her face, and she was never seen out without a thick veil. She was pretty easy upon the score of being recognized now, 
for Mrs. Ducey and her daughters had been sojourning at Stalkenberg, and they did not know her in the least. Who could know her? What resemblance was there between that grey, broken-down woman, with her disfiguring marks, and the once-loved Lady Isabel, with her bright colour, her beauty, her dark flowing curls, and her agile figure? Mr. Carlyle himself could not have told her, but she was good-looking still, in spite of it all, gentle and interesting, and people wondered to see that grey hair in one yet young. She had been with the Crosbys going on for two years. After her recovery from the railway accident, she moved to a quiet town in the vicinity. They were living there, and she became daily governess to Helena. The Crosbys were given to understand that she was English, but the widow of a Frenchman. She was obliged to offer some plausible account. There were no references, but she so won upon their esteem as the daily governess that they soon took her into the house. Had Lady Isabel surmised that they would be travelling to so conspicuous a spot as an English-frequented German watering-place, she might have hesitated to accept the engagement. However, it had been of service to her, the meeting with Mrs. Ducey proving that she was altered beyond any chance of recognition. She could go anywhere now. But now, what about her state of mind? I don't know how to describe it. The vain yearning, the inward fever, the restless longing for what might not be. Longing for what? For her children? Let the mother, be she a duchess, or be she an apple-woman at a stand, be separated for a while from her little children, let her answer how she yearns for them. She may be away on a tour of pleasure for a few weeks, the longing to see their little faces again, to hear their prattling tongues, to feel their soft kisses, is kept under, and there may be frequent messages, the children's dear love to mamma, but as the weeks lengthen out, the, the desire to see them again becomes almost irrepressible. What must it have been then for Lady Isabel, who had endured this longing for years? Talk of the mal de poise, which is said to attack the Swiss when exiled from their country. That is as nothing compared to the heart-sickness which clung to Lady Isabel. She had passionately loved her children. She had been anxious for their welfare in all ways, and not the least she had to endure now was the thought that she had abandoned them to be trained by strangers. Would they be trained to goodness? To morality? To religion? Careless as she herself had once been upon these points, she had learnt better now. Would Isabel grow up to indifference too, perhaps do as she had done? Lady Isabel flung her hands before her eyes and groaned in anguish. It happened that Mrs. Latimer, a lady living at West Lynn, betook herself about that time to Stalkenberg, and with her, three parts maid and one part companion, went Affie Hallijohn. 
not that Affy was admitted to the society of Mrs. Latimer, to sit with her or dine with her, nothing of that, but she did enjoy more privileges than most ladies' maids do, and Affy, who was never backward at setting off her own consequence, gave out that she was a companion. Mrs. Latimer was an easy woman, fond of Affy, and Affy had made her own tale good to her respecting the ill-natured reports at the time of the murder, so that Mrs. Latimer looked upon her as one to be compassionated. Mrs. Latimer and Mrs. Crosby, whose apartment in the hotel joined, struck up a violent friendship, the one for the other. Ere the former had been a week at the Ludwig, they had sworn something like eternal sisterhood, as both had probably done for others fifty times before. End of chapter 31